0: file this one under music adjacent. I first encountered Daniel Rayburn's name about 20 years ago in the pages of the left literary journal The Baffler. He had written this really eloquent takedown of the cartoonist Al Cap that was forceful and funny and totally convincing. I soon discovered that Dan published a zine called The Imp. Each issue of The Imp was basically an extended essay on a single underground cartoonist. The first three were about Dan Klaus, Jack Chick, and Chris Ware. It's unreal how good these beautifully designed, smartly written booklets were. They really took comics exegesis to the next level. That Chris Ware issue in particular has become a part of me. I've read it so many times over the years. It helped me see Ware's work with fresh eyes. It also convinced me that reading a piece of art's criticism could be as richly rewarding an experience as being immersed in the world of a novel or a film. I corresponded a bit with Daniel in the early 2000s. His letters were warm and gracious and encouraging of my own middling stabs at writing and dating. A few years later, I googled Daniel's name to see what he was up to. And I came across a deeply personal essay by him in The New Yorker called Vessels about losing his daughter Irene to stillbirth. Daniel reworked this material into a longer piece, and Vessels was published as a book by Norton in 2016. Anything I say about this really special book is going to sound like one of the blurbs I've seen about it over the years. So suffice to say, it's a tremendously moving memoir about love, loss, and family, and I commend it to you. I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging chat with Daniel Rayburn on Rock Rite. So before you started The Imp, what was your exposure to this world? Did you know about zines? Actually, I did know a
1: little bit about zines and comics in Iowa City. <clears throat> there was a, a really weird fringe video rental store called Akbar and Jeff's Tofu Hut which took its name from some a couple of obscure characters in Matt Groening's comic, Life in Hell, sort of hit pre-Simpsons, Matt Groening. And they had old, they, well, they had copies of Fantagraphics type comic books like Daniel Klaus's Lloyd Llewellyn and other stuff lying around there that you could sort of hang out in a chair and read. And so I was exposed to a, some underground comics there Particularly the work of Linda Berry, Matt Groening, and then Dan Klaus, uh, and the Hernandez brothers, Love and Rockets, which was a real revelation. You know, I realized, oh wow. You know, in the 10 years that I stopped reading comics, all this amazing stuff happened in the 1980s. And, but then I moved to London. And the only comic or sort of underground culture thing I found there at the time, which wasn't really underground, was um. This cartoonist named chuck death who is really john langford from the band Mekons, oh. had a had a regular comic strip there in which he wrote about american country music and i got really into that and i wanted to seek it out when i moved to chicago and the only place to find that kind of stuff in chicago was quimby's bookstore which was yeah a revelation you know you i walked in there and it was like uh, this was in 1992, uh, or very early 1993, it was the internet, <laughs> you know, there were, there were magazines for every niche in the world, you know, there was a magazine, just for people who had certain uh, fetishes, <laughs> there was, uh, it was like very kind of borderline pornographic content everywhere, and it was just wide open. And, you know, you could just spend hours in that store. Um and I kind of realized at a certain point, this is what I want to do. This is the world that I want to be involved in. And I think what made it so compelling was that it was all almost all nonfiction. Almost all the writing was nonfiction and that was a real welcome wake up call to me because I had been an undergraduate at the University of Iowa which I don't know if the University of Iowa's fame in the writing world extends as far as Canada. It, like the, the whole game there was fiction. Fiction was the dominant, to use the word that everybody liked to use in 1988, it was the it was the, hege, it was the hegemony. <laughs> the Fiction was hegemonic. And it was just really great to encounter kind of a thriving underground nonfiction writing culture. And the guy who ran Quimby, Stephen Swambersky, was you know he would he would take anything he would take anything on consignment so the bar to entry was was pretty low and and i think that was appealing too because i was you know 20 early 20s and you know insecure about my own abilities and and also sort of disdainful of anything that smacked of of joining any kind of mainstream in any sort of way you Mm -hmm. know so i was very kind of typically uh Annoying, <laughs> self-righteous 20-something year old using a veneer of of political resistance to cover up for my own insecurities. But uh, that was a that was a part of the equation, too. And, and it was just a fun world. I mean, it was just a really interesting, uh, out, just really out there world. I mean, I felt like a total square among all the, the you know, because I was just sort of like still wearing that L.L. Bean sweater that my parents had given me for Christmas. Yeah, I was, I was, I was nerdy, you know, and and it, it was kind of a bunch of nerds. It was people who deliberately didn't want to be cool and had no interest in it and, and were all kind of misfit. So it was definitely the island of misfit toys. Uh, and those have always been my people, I think. So, so yeah, eventually I kind of, got it together enough, I saved up enough money at my various temp jobs to print a thousand copies of an interview with Dan Klaus that I did. I should say the other thing that really got me going were were actually several kind of uh, well-known and therefore mainstream things. Number one, the New Yorker magazine had a staff writer, Lawrence Weschler, who I've always loved. He wrote a long profile of Art Spiegelman for the magazine, and then he wrote a long profile of the another cartoonist ben catcher who does this amazing strip called julius knipple real estate photographer among other things and they ran in the New Yorker. And I just thought, Oh, that's what I want to do. I want to write long profiles about cartoonists for the New Yorker, you know, just not so much because it was the New Yorker, but just because it would be long form. And then I saw the film crumb, which I believe came out in like 94 maybe or 95 at the latest somewhere. Mm, I think so. Yeah. Terry's Wygoff's documentary about Robert Crumb, which is the best thing he ever did. And I realized I wanted to do that in prose, you know, the equivalent of that documentary, but in prose form, since I'm not a filmmaker, um, that's basically what I did. And I I had to publish it myself because nobody, (laughs) except apparently the editor of the New Yorker at that time would publish anything about comic books. They just couldn't get their head around it. Despite the fact that Mouse had blown up and You know uh, comics had made inroads as so-called graphic novels but when you proposed or pitched uh, a story as i did about a profile of dan klaus who was i think sort of the reigning king of independent comics at that time uh and and probably still is um and maybe he's tied with chris ware and some other people but anyway people didn't understand editors just kind of said I'm sorry like adult comics do you what what do you mean by adult comics and you'd have to explain well there there is some sexual content but and they just kind of shrugged you off you know because they thought you were talking about you know that sort of elf quest type stuff which featured like you know fantasy comics that you know <laughs> had more sexual fantasy than swords in them or equal amounts of both so they just couldn't get their head around it. So it was born of necessity you know yeah. one of the favorite things anybody ever said about the imp <clears throat> was said by one of your fellow countrymen Jeet uh, here who is now, I believe, an editor at the New Republic. And he said, oh, the, he said this on Twitter, which I don't follow, but somebody pointed it out to me recently. He said, the imp is better than snorting Neil Adams's cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> I, if, if you know who Neil Adams was, it's funnier.
0: Yeah, the, the Batman cartoonist, is that? Yeah,
1: new? yeah, yeah. Super realistic, quintessential 80s, muscular yeah. superhero cartoonist. <laughs> absolutely. I just thought like that's it. I can die happy now. I'm better than Neil Adams's cocaine. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it was it was it was more fun to self publish. I have since published things in magazines, including a couple of pieces for the New Yorker, which that's was right. a great experience. Um, they treat their writers really respectfully and well and courteously, unlike the majority of magazines out there. But you know, it has a circulation of 1 million people. And if you publish a piece in there, I, I actually got less mail about those pieces of writing than I did from any one single issue of The Imp, which only sold between maybe three or 7,000 copies per issue total. <laughs> so, like, the culture you were engaging with, the zine culture, was just much more engaged. And there was just something about it where people felt... Like they could just write you a long letter telling you in great detail why you were wrong about something <laughs> or <laughs> what they really liked, but they just somehow the barrier to communication was lower. Whereas once you like published a book between hardcovers for a New York publisher, or published a piece in the New Yorker, the letters always began with something like, I, I'm sure you're really busy and you don't have time for this. And I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to say X, Y, and Z. I found that kind of sad, you know, that people presume that you're too big or important to write to when, as you know, anybody who does anything for a creative, for a living or for a hobby lives for letters like that. So there's just a, I think that's what kept me in it for so long. Because I mean, I did get a few little offers to write for magazines here and there. Like I did a couple of short pieces for the Village Voice and I did, uh, a couple of, you know, reviews of comics for the Washington Post and other magazines, but it just wasn't as fun or as satisfying as just doing it directly myself, where I had complete creative control over everything. Mm -hmm. That's, that was the real attraction, having complete creative control over the entire project, you know, down to the staples and the paper and the ink and everything like that. Uh, it's, it's really hard to give that up once you've had a taste of it.
0: What's your memory of actually working on these Dan, like how much time would they take? I mean, your last the fourth interview did was 112 pages. Like we're, we're talking a small book deeply researched. How much time did you devote, not just to the writing, but as you said, like every detail, like the design, putting it together, publishing it, the distribution work as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. A a lot of time, a lot of time, which is something you can do when you're in your twenties and you're childless and semi-employed. I mean, one of the great things about Chicago back then it was, it was really affordable. Hmm. And so even as a a temp, I could work half the year and then take half the year off. Um, So I would say roughly each issue took about six months to produce uh, the first two. The Chris Ware one probably took a year. And then the Mexican comic book one took several years because I had to do a lot of research in the background and and I had to save up a lot of money to pay the printing costs. So, yeah, a lot, a lot, a lot of time in the way that I think any, I mean, they're basically, especially the last two are about as long as books. Um, They are basically books, Mm -hmm. shorter books, but books for sure, book length, but they took a lot of time. And, and there's this weird thing where as it became more successful, it started taking more and more time. I mean, just the business of, you know, sending six or 10 copies to a little, you know, to wow, cool records in Berkeley, California, or, you know, sending 50 copies to Chloe Udaly at Reading Frenzy in Portland, Oregon. I mean, packing all those up, walking them, you know, the analog aspect of it became very time consuming and and the business aspect of it, which I was pretty punctilious uh, about, really did start to take over. There's also this thing where because you're just barely breaking even on it, you actually start to lose more and more money the more successful you become until like the fourth issue, like which kind of flopped sales wise. Uh, You know, I just I I lost like uh, more money than I could count. I was afraid to actually do the math because it would have been so crushing, and it essentially put me out of business. Um, I actually before I moved into the apartment my wife and I are in right now. Four years ago I just had to take all the unsold copies of the imp and just throw them all in the. City of Chicago recycling bin, I filled I filled two bins all the way to the top with unsold copies of uh, the fourth issue, um, which must have given the garbage men or the recycling men a real
0: shock. <laughs> <had to> see. <laughs> so, so for context, uh, they, your fourth uh, issue was, as you said, 112 was, page, you referred to it as your Waterloo. It was devoted to Mexican historietas, which are basically like these like salacious melodramatic pornographic comics that sell by the millions in Mexico.
1: Yeah. 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 They're 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 on one hand, you could call them borderline pornography. On the other hand, they're sort of worse than pornography, because they had really had really good stories. <laughs> <laughs> and the stories were the really kind of dirty, horrible, perverted parts, <laughs> much more so than the imagery, which was always Managed to be X-rated, but technically PG-13 or R-rated at worst. Uh, I don't know how they did it. Um, it's, it's kind of an art form, dodging the censors in Mexico. There's a long history of it that I actually go into in the book. But yeah, there's smut. That's what I. That's the term I finally settled on, was there's smut, which is a little bit different than pornography. It's, it's sort of dirtier and has a element of morality and shame attached to it. And that's what I found kind of fascinating. They, they were, they're very moralizing booklets. In a way, they're sort of like Jack Chick's comics.
0: I was going to say.
1: You know, because they, they do come from a religious perspective, but it's just a traditional Catholic kind of small town perspective, you know. In Mexico, the, the typical story is like, there's an, you know, a virtuous girl from the countryside who moves to Mexico City. And falls in with the wrong crowd. And the wrong crowd are always the Americanized Mexicans. You know, they always like the artists go out of their way to sort of signal to the reader that the wrong crowd are Americanized because they'll have t-shirts with band names on them and they'll have piercings and dyed hair and all this, these sort of markers of Americanization or North Americanization. And she winds up being despoiled and disgraced by them. You know, so they're morality tales, yeah. So, and that's what they had in common with with chick tracts. I, I didn't really see that until I was deep into the issue, and realized, oh, I'm I'm still kind of working with religious comic books here, <laughs> just in a very different way.
0: I'm curious why comics readers are typically some of the most kind of smut obsessed people. Why why didn't it sell better?
1: It was it was the cover price. I think number one it was twenty dollars
0: the production values were incredible
1: it it cost a lot of money it was four color printing and it was you know it was more than a hundred pages of four color printing so it was four times more expensive than anything i'd done before so it was that and i remember the woman who worked at quimby's telling me like do you think you can get that cover price down that's a really tough sell people are used to paying two three four maybe five dollars for a zine but twenty but it was kind of designed to be like a budget coffee table book. So I, I you know, I gambled and, and lost on that. I, th- I think the other thing was that Mexico is, is kind of a tough sell. I mean, it, it might not be as true now, but, you know, most Americans, they, they, they just have a picture of Mexico in their head and they don't really want to change it. They don't really want to read anything in depth about it so i think that's that's a part of it too just this this the, co- the country i was writing about was was kind of a tough sell um mm. fortunately. And, and that's fine I, I didn't really want to reach those readers anyway i also just think that i overestimated other people's attraction to these comics just because i loved them and thought <laughs> these are the greatest comic books ever they're so <laughs> terrible these are the most I mean, I thought Chick tracts were the most despicable reading material on earth. And that's one of the reasons why I kind of, I loved them. I mean, I had a love-hate relationship with them. I thought, and that turned out to be a fairly universal thing. A lot of people around the world have that kind of relationship with Chick tracts. With Mexican comics, that didn't happen, you know? Uh, I felt like I'd found something that was more despicable then Chick Tracks, yay! Let's talk about them for 130 pages in great detail and interview the writers and artists who make them and read about the history and show lots of pictures of you know people with getting their heads severed and blood and gore and violence and sex. And actually, a lot of people just weren't interested. They just looked at them at once and said, oh, these are horrible. I, Ooh, they just put them down and didn't want to look at them again. (laughs) So I guess it was just me, you know, it was my
0: quirk. I wonder if it's easier for people to have like a camp kind of relationship with something homegrown and familiar, like Chick Tracks. And it's easier to dump on that stuff and people to feel not guilty about it, perhaps, and seeing the Mexican stuff is too like, oh, we can't, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, to absolutely. I, I kind of wrote about that a little bit in the Mexican issue. I, I called it the Jerry Lewis syndrome. Mm. You know, we, as Americans, we always took offense when you would meet somebody from France and they would say, Oh, you know, Jerry Lewis is the greatest thing America has ever produced. And Jerry Lewis was America's gift to the world. When mm-hmm. We did not have those feelings about Jerry Lewis at all. <laughs> and we sort of took offense and wanted to point out, like, well, I don't know, maybe maybe you could put Miles Davis or John Coltrane in there or or Richard Pryor for that matter, anybody but Jerry Lewis. And and I think I was doing a version of that in Mexico. I mean, when I was down there interviewing the art cartoonists, the sort of, you know, the alternative or underground serious cartoonists in Mexico. And I interviewed them about these mainstream industrial comics. They they would always kind of say, why are you (laughs) doing this? You know, like this is the worst thing we have to offer. You're just making our country look really bad. Yeah. So there was that aspect of it too. I mean, I think I was, I think I got way beyond the sort of camp or ironic hipster thing, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, especially once I met the people who make them and I interviewed them at, at length about what it's like to work in a, in a, with, in a maquiladora. That's the verb they use maquilar, which mm-hmm. is like uh, an industrial labor. Uh, it's a sweatshop, and, and the comics are made in a sweatshop system. And so it really became a story about labor relations and the potential of Mexican comics to transcend what's kind of like a warped, depraved Hollywood system and Mm -hmm. to produce works of real art in the same way that Mexican filmmakers were actually doing that during the same time is when a lot of groundbreaking Mexican films started coming out. And I was hopeful that something like that would happen in the world of Mexican comics. I'm
0: talking about Jack Chick's work. For listeners who may not know, Jack Chick put out those fundamentalist chick comic tracks that you used to see everywhere. Did Jack Chick's work basically change over the years? Did he soften or harden at all?
1: You know, I stopped following him pretty closely after 1999 when I published that issue. Um, No, I think Jack got kind of harder as he went on. I take that back. Yeah, I think his sort of paranoia, I mean, it's interesting now because when I look at Jack Chick now, I think he is really relevant because he is sort of the embodiment of the QAnon conspiracy theorist just 30 years ago. I think Mm -hmm. his penchant for crazy out there, anti-Catholic, anti-everything conspiracy theories really peaked in the 70s and 80s. And then that's true in the 90s, he began to distance himself a little bit from the conspiracy theorists who he was basing his comics on, particularly because they were all being disgraced and sex scandals or being tagged by the IRS for fraud and all the kinds of things that cult leaders and, you know, disinformation specialists like Alex Jones types. I think he, he began to disassociate with them and become a loner. I mean, he, he was a loner that's the one thing that the people who've met him have said that he is he does fit the stereotype of the cartoonist as as a loner who rarely leaves the house and shuns the spotlight <laughs> prefers to wage war you know in private with pen and paper but after 1999 you know he still produced stuff up until he died what 4 years ago
0: yeah i think i think it was 2016 17 or you were on i actually heard you after the fact, but you're on uh, Canadian radio talking about him at his death.
1: I was. Yeah. Yeah. And that's because you guys have better taste than Americans. (laughs) (laughs) You do not see
0: Chick tracks around here. I've, I've seen them once or twice as like a library or a bus, but I I don't think they're as ubiquitous in Canada.
1: No, again, because you guys have better taste, Ah.
0: you know, yeah, yeah, they were everywhere
1: at Halloween when I was, especially when I lived in Texas. I lived in East Texas, kind of right where Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas meet. And you sort of get all the disadvantages of those three areas and none of the advantages of those areas. It's, it's like the Bible Belt of the Bible Belt, and, and they were everywhere. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it sometimes it felt like on Halloween you would get as many chick tracks as you would get Mars bars or Snickers, you know? Um, yeah. So they were pretty ubiquitous. And then even at the University of Iowa, which is actually a really liberal college town, but it, it's surrounded by, you know, old school Iowa fundamentalists out in the cornfields and they come into Iowa city all the time. And there were just a couple of people who would blanket the town with tracts. So I, you know, in college, everybody collected them and, you know, we would rip bong hits and and laugh at them, you know, and and read them. And, and I just kind of wondered, like, who is this guy? And why has nobody ever written about him? Because he's a very successful cartoonist. And just because he's a born again Christian doesn't mean that he sh- we should discriminate against him. He should get serious, critical attention, just like any other artist. So that was sort of my excuse for skewering him. <laughs>
0: you admire them in a different way you would Dan Klaus or Chris Ware or Ivan Brunetti. It's a, it's coming from a slightly different place. It's a bit more complicated relationship. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, as an artist, I don't know. It's funny. I've had debates with other cartoonists about this, like your countryman, man, uh, Gregory Gallant, also known as Seth. The drawn and quarterly artist said, you know, I prefer Jack Chick's Cartoony style to Fred Carter's. Fred Carter is the American, the African American counterpart. He he was sort of Jack Chick's right hand man, and he did all the big full length comics and what I consider to be all of Jack Chick's tract size masterpieces from the seventies. So he's heavy. like the
0: auteur for you.
1: Yeah, I mean Fred Carter was like I call I think I called him the real superhero. But you know because he and he had kind of a Neil Adams style. He had a style that was actually very similar to a Filipino cartooning style, but we can't get into all that. It's too nerdy. But <laughs> he was like, a, 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 actually an accomplished and talented cartoonist. whereas Jack Chick's comics, kind of, they've gone pretty downhill. Uh, you know, he had a stroke at a certain point. He did a comic attacking the Jews, and he worried that the God of Israel would attack him for attacking the Jews. And in fact, he did have a stroke right after he finished drawing that comic and it affected his right hand, which the hand he drew with. (laughs) And his drawing was never the same. And I feel like by the end of his life, Jack Chick was just, I mean, he was doing tracts railing against the easter bunny the tooth fairy <laughs> it
0: was just coming out picking, of targets i think
1: <laughs> picking really easy targets and he was aiming them at kids i mean this is sort of the sinister thing is you realized he was really really gunning for children and trying to get at kids while they were still young and impressionable and scare them into accepting jesus as their own personal savior Um, so while they became sort of more cuddly or less, less disturbing and, and depraved uh, on the outside, I, I think deep down the intent was, was worse. So, yeah, that's sort of another arc, but again, like after like about 2000, maybe a year or two after that issue came out, I just, I was busy and immersed in all things Mexico and, and, um. And the amount of correspondence that, that issue engendered was, was kind of great at first. But one thing I realized was that the born-again atheists were about as annoying as the born-again Christians. <laughs> I'd get these letters <laughs> from born-again atheists who were trying to recruit me to write, you know, write for them in some way. And, and, and they really kind of are like evangelicals for atheism. And, and in that sense, they're not that different than evangelicals. <laughs> and I felt kind of caught up in that. And I felt like I, I don't really want to quarterback this team or even play on this team at all. So uh, it's just not my battle. You know, it's just not my war. So and, and like I said, I was consumed with all these other things, like trying to get the Mexican issue done so I, I kind of stopped following Jack. My, my favorite
0: issue, The Imp, has to be the Chris Ware one. What's your memory of working on that one?
1: The most salient memory I have is sitting there trying to write this really long, long story about a book that wasn't even done yet. Jimmy Corrigan wasn't done. And I'd been just writing about it for months and months and And it wasn't quite clicking. And I had a poster on my wall um, made by this guy, silkscreened by this artist named Stephen Walters, I believe his name was. Um, He was a well-known Chicago silkscreen printer. He did tons of band posters and stuff. You've seen his work before, for sure. It was all over that film High Fidelity that they shot in Chicago in the 90s. Anyway, but he did a poster for the baffler magazine, which uh, I wrote for as well. And, and it was a poster that had like a sticker on it that said something like, I don't know, you know, in room X, Y, Z at 7. PM with the date. And that was like a sticker that they had stuck on the poster. And I was just sitting there sort of feeling really stuck and kind of writers blocked, just kind of lost. And all of a sudden, it was a hot summer day. That sticker just peeled off and fell to the ground. And underneath it, there had been this quote by one of my sort of another critic artist who I have a love-hate relationship with, H.L. Mencken. And this is the quote that was on the Baffler poster. Find a writer who is indubitably an American in every pulse beat, who has something new and per." peculiar peculiarly american to say and says it in an unmistakably american way and 9 times out of 10 you will find that he has some sort of connection with that gigantic and inordinate abattoir by lake michigan that he was bred in chicago or he passed through there in the days when he was young and tender and i was like it just hit me like a lightning bolt like that's what this story is about It's about Chris Ware moving to Chicago when he was young and tender, and somehow that experience of the city shaping him and shaping Jimmy Corrigan. And so that became the the epigraph for the whole issue. I mean, I led the whole issue off with it on the front Mm -hmm. page. And so it was just like luck, you know, that that piece of paper peeled off that quotation uh, that the baffler had used, and I then repurposed.
0: That's amazing. So who knows what would have happened if you hadn't chanced on that?
1: I, yeah, I don't know. Um, uh, it would have taken me a lot longer, I think, to kind of figure out that that was the story. The story of Chris moving to Chicago from Austin, Texas, where he had a lot of friends and I think had a normal life or at least a more social life. And then moving to a big city where you don't know anybody and you're really isolated and I think that's what gave birth to like his understanding of the Jimmy Corrigan character, because that is a story about urban loneliness, among many other things. So that was like the in. And once I had that, I kind of knew I had a, I had a foothold, I had a handhold, and and I could get the rest of the story. It took a few more months to get it, but I, I was I was much more sure after that lucky accident. So that's kind of my main memory of writing it. And then, yeah, I, I think it did really well because it looked cool. <laughs> you no, know, I don't think many people read it. I think they just bought it and were like, "Yeah, that looks really cool." But <laughs> I don't know. I how actually read it. It's it's a lot of it's a lot of words.
0: I, I can. My wife can vouch for this. When when we were in university, and undergrad, she has memories of me reading that thing between classes. I've read it a bunch of times and memorized portions of it. I wrote a piece on Seth. Back in 2001 or 2002, it's a long, kind of aimless piece. But so many bits of that were probably unconsciously swiped from your Chris Ware thing. But I'm not the only one. Like Ira Glass basically said, anything that there is to say about Ware, he's basically said in this giant, giant essay.
1: Uh, yeah, I remember that quote because it was it was in the Chicago Reader, and yeah, that that is right up there with my other favorite thing that anybody ever said about the imp, especially coming from him. <laughs> the, the thing that freaked me out about that though, is he called me a journalist or he said, it, it, he said there's not much journalism like it out there. And I got really scared because I am not a journalist. I have no journalistic training. I I can't even really tell you what a nut graph or a lead is. <laughs> <or> I <anything. laughs> just, I'm completely self-taught blundering around. I don't know. I have no, I never took a single journalism class. I have no professional. I mean, I have a basic grasp of
0: ethics in general, but... What would you call it? Arts criticism?
1: That's the term I'm applying to renew. I'm applying to keep the job I've already had for 15 years at the University of Chicago. And yeah, I called it art criticism. That seemed respectable enough. Uh huh. <laughs> Although if you look at issue number four with the cover and the, you know, the naked women giving the guy a blowjob, it's gonna be pretty hard to justify it as art criticism. I'm just hoping they don't look too deeply into the <laughs> into the issues themselves.
0: It, I mean, it, it's interesting how these things have worked out to be your these self-published booklet scenes have like they're functioning like your portfolio. And and I'll want to talk about your your academic career in a second too. I haven't read their wear one in a while. But I do remember issue four, you injected a bunch of your own personal life into that one, maybe in a way that you hadn't in the first few issues. Was that something that you were striving to do a little bit? Like, was that your move towards personalizing these essays a little bit and moving away from traditional arts criticism and saying like, hey, I'm an author, I'm a person, I'm not going to pretend this isn't written by Dan Rayburn. Here's something that happened in my life that reflects some of the weird dodgy things that people read about in his historietas
1: yeah yeah I think that was it I I think it was not consciously I think there were two unconscious things at work maybe three one uh, Chris Ware who became like a really good friend and that's why I stopped writing about him at a certain point because after I published this he and I became friends we had kids at about the same time and you know, took long road trips together with our daughters to go visit Laura Ingalls Wilder's home and hurry. And we always planned to get up to Desmet, North Dakota. And, and we became friends. And one of the things he said to me is you should stop writing about comic books and just start writing about life. Don't use me as a medium for making points about life or, or anybody else. You can just do it directly. And I, I think that was a real vote of confidence. uh, And I think that was working on me. It took a few years, but I think it had started to sink in then. I think the other thing that was unconsciously at work was to get revenge on an ex-girlfriend who had done me wrong. And I knew Uh I could could play that story for laughs. (laughs) Shoot, for those of you, for the, the millions of people out there who haven't read the issue about Mexican comics, you know, they are melodramas and they are trash. And I wanted to make the argument that life itself can be really melodramatic and trashy and I have an ex girlfriend who demonstrates that to the nth degree and here's what happened and I told the story. And it was very similar to the plot of one of these comic books. She was a high school teacher who was having an illicit affair with one of her high school students while we were dating I didn't know about it, and I found out about it It was a big scandal shit hit the fan. <laughs> I was really miserable about it, but I also knew it was going to make a great story someday because I knew it was it could be really funny too um, in some ways, depending on how you play it. And so I did. And I wrote about that. And yeah, that seemed to be a the part of that issue that a lot of people clicked with. Like my friend Mike said, yeah, I read up to that port, point. I stopped reading <laughs> after that, but that part was really good. <laughs> so, So I think that was a, a factor too, was was revenge and and also just trying to broaden just trying to broaden my repertoire you know i think because of what you talked about earlier the fact that i'm like a white north american writing about mostly brown people in mexico although these comics are published by the white ruling class in mexico but i sort of had to put more of myself into the issue you know, so I didn't just come across as like the sneering, ironic hipster. You know, I, I had to make it clear that I really had deeply personal reasons for reading these comic books about horrible, scandalous, terrible behavior and that I was implicated in it, you know, that I'd, I'd had similar experiences in my own life. So I wanted to kind of to do that uh, so I wouldn't just be like writing from this distance, you know. So I think that was kind of the third thing that led to me bringing what we might call more elements of memoir into art criticism,
0: or journalism, journalism, as Ira Glass put it. (laughs) And you've you've kind of moved away from comics criticism, arts criticism to writing essays and memoir. How did that happen? You were, you were tapped to write this history of underground comics, I think, and some points in the process you got jaded. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I wrote a, a proposal, um, uh, a long proposal that I worked very hard on to do an imp book for the publisher W.W. W. Norton in New York and, and, and sold the proposal and spent the advance money and then started to write the book. But I was kind of getting, wasn't making a whole lot of headway on it, but I was trying very hard. And then my wife got pregnant and we had a daughter who died. She died at birth, actually right before birth. So she was stillborn and that changed everything. Like I just couldn't write about comic books after that. And again, you know, it's funny. Uh, Here's the parallel with my answer to your last question. I was talking to Chris Ware on the phone a few days after this happened, breaking the news to him And at the end of that conversation, during which he was, as always, an excellent and sympathetic and generous, kind, great friend, he said, "Um, you should write down some of the things you just told me. Like the way you worded things was just really important. And I think if you wrote it down, it might help people who are going through or will go through what you've been through. And I did, I mean, because if you're an artist and or a writer and chris ware tells you to do something it's you definitely want to consider that because you know <laughs> it's good advice usually uh 99 of the time even if it's you know ultimately not what you do you should consider it and, and so i gave it a shot and, and he was right and so i wrote a piece about it and sent it to the new yorker and they took it <laughs> how often does that happen they, they took it in like one minute David Remnick called me on the phone and said, oh, we'd be honored to publish this. Checks in the mail. It's um, amazing. It was. It was. And it was the only good thing that came out of that. So yeah, I, I would give, I mean, I think you can tell from the sort of uh, the hero worshiping aspect of the imp. It was a fanzine. I only wrote about things I really loved. I think you can tell that like Chris Ware has just been a huge influence on me. I mean, of the people I've met since I moved to Chicago, I think he's probably had more influence on me than almost anybody, which is saying a lot. So, yeah, I think he kind of gave me a nudge in that direction. And then I just decided to do a book length version of, of that short piece for the New Yorker. And when I contacted Norton and told them like, Hey, listen, I I can't do that book about comics. I don't really know how to explain it, but comics as a subject is kind of dead for me right now. Um, But this book about the death of my daughter is alive, weirdly enough. And that's the book that I not only want to write, but need to write. And they said, well, that's fine. Just write it. You know, we'll be interested in anything you do. So I did. And they did publish it. It It's actually Matt Weiland published it. um, Not the original editor who had moved on to a kind of a different branch of Norton. But they, they published it four years ago. No, five years ago. Almost five
0: years ago. So... It's yeah, a beautiful book too. Vessels, and you mentioned Chris Ware encouraged you to write it because it might put these thoughts down in those words to help other people. Did it? So like, a, it's a bit of a trick question, but did it help you? What was the experience of writing?
1: Yeah, it, it was kind of the deepest artistic experience in my life. It was really, really hard. It was. I, I don't want to. I mean, writing is always hard. Every project is really hard. I mean, I, I think it was James Baldwin who said like every book kicks your ass (laughs) you know (laughs) this one really did because um because of the subject matter and you know you're just reliving really painful stuff day after day after day for for years i I mean it took me a long time to make that book short ultimately i realized it had to be short enough to read in one sitting because i don't think anybody was going to put it down halfway through and then pick it up again because it was so grim it's a very grim story so it took me a long time to make it short. know, originally it was like 600 pages or something like that. And then I whittled it down to just a little bit under 200. So you could read it in like three or four hours. And that just took a long, long time. Uh, because, you know, my wife and I have had two happy, healthy kids since then. Thank God. And they were, so they were keeping me really busy. And, and the story became about that too. About the fact that life goes on. You know, uh, that sounds trite, but that's sort of the great thing that life goes on. But it's also kind of the terrible thing that life goes on. And you uh, start to forget, you know. I started to forget about Irene, the, the daughter who died, you know, and I didn't ever want to forget her. But it starts to happen, especially after like 10 years. Uh, I mean, I still think about her every day but not as often every day as I used to, and the memories get fuzzier and vaguer, and that's its own kind of loss, so that's sort of what the story was about. It was ultimately, I think, a story about memory, among many other things, and that, yeah, that was really personal. I mean, I don't know how deeply you read into it. There was was a little, there was actually a tiny little bit of rock writing in
0: there, Oh, there's an ahead. REM
1: reference somewhere in there, I think. You had a you're the only thank God, Armin. you're the only person who's ever caught the Michael Stipe reference. Yes. A guy really? who wore <laughs> a man who wore a dress and sang about the passion. I mean, anybody who grew up in the 80s knows that's Michael Stipe on their first record, you know, Murmur. Yeah. <laughs> uh and then there was the the Hooskerdoo kind of there's a Hooskerdoo black flag Bach mashup in there. Where I talk about selling my entire record collection afterward because I'm really basically depressed, and and I had a near death experience listening to the song Black Coffee by Black Flag when I was 16. I flipped my car end over end three times going while driving to school at 60 miles an hour on a Texas rural highway, and I was completely unable to listen to the song Black Coffee by Black Flag after that. Like I. I remember knowing at some point at a party in college that it was coming up because somebody was playing that record. I think it's Family Man. Um, and I remember just getting up and leaving because I just knew I can never hear that song again because I'll have some kind of horrible flashback to that near-death experience. Oh my
0: goodness.
1: So, it's not their best
0: song, so you're you're okay.
1: God. Yeah, it's not, but, it, but the relationship to that, it could have been anything. It could have been the Doobie Brothers and I would still have that feeling, you know? <laughs> um so anyway I did sneak some music writing in there and I tried to do it without naming the bands you know I didn't want to name Husker Du I thought it would just be more important that their name means do you remember because as I said it's ultimately a like all memoirs it's a book about memory ultimately memory itself so I I wanted to bring that in and, and and I listened to the hell out of Zen Arcade while I was writing it too and I really reconnected with it after 20 years oh it's just such a sonic blast of oh all this emotion and just anger (laughs) just tons of anger and aggression and all the stuff that you feel when you're grieving and you feel really strongly when you're a teenager too or at least i did and it was really great to sort of hook up with that old flame you know Uh, I'm still doing it actually I've been listening to to New Day Rising every single day before I go on the book I work on right now I know I haven't changed at all I'm the 50 I'm like the 52 year old hippies when I was in college who still listened to hippie music (laughs) (laughs) I'm just just a different version of that but uh, I've been listening to the song New Day Rising and Girl is on Heaven Hill just to get myself kind of Amped up and adrenaline, adrenalinized before I, you know, start writing at my desk every morning. Um, it's such
0: it's an amazing one two punch, those two songs, man. Yeah. It is. I mean, we,
1: we, we, I guess I was about to say we can't go into this because we're here to talk about comics, but no, but we can no, talk about
0: anything. We can do anything we want. It's absolutely
1: a uh, Grant Hart is just, he's the shit, man. Is such a great drummer. Oh, yeah. And I just, I, now I, re- I, it's nice to revisit stuff that you loved, loved, loved when you were younger and realize it's actually even better than I remembered, <laughs> you know, like sometimes you listen to stuff you loved when you were younger and you're like, oh yeah, it hasn't held up too well, but man, the Grant Hart stuff does, the Bob Mould stuff, not quite so much for me. And it was just, again, it was just that kind of primal howl of outrage you know that comes through on so many of those songs uh from that era of Husker du, kind of what I think of as their golden era zen arcade new day rising flip your wig that's kind of the that trinity right there. It is is pretty amazing three record well four because zen arcade was a double record anyway it's just such great stuff and it, it just took me back to a time when I felt like powerless and angry you know and that's exactly how I felt in midlife you know after my daughter died I just you know I, I was that same kind of it's worse than the feeling you had as a teenager but there was something about listening to music that is fundamentally about pain that made me feel less pain even though it made me feel more in the short run it, it sort of helped with it uh, anyway I'm, I feel like I'm talking to my therapist now and it was good medicine that's all I'm saying. Um, And so that's kind of what the process of writing it was about, too, because like when you write about like a basically, for lack of a better word, a traumatic experience or a death in your life or some some loss. Like you're you're reliving it when you rewrite it, when you write about it, but you're also you have control over the writing. And so you're reliving it, but you have like a little bit of control this time, just in terms of how you frame things. And it's, there's something about that process of reliving an experience, but as a writer, when you have a little bit of control, when in fact you had no control when it happened, there's something about that that, that helped me put myself back together. Hmm. Um, and so I guess the book was kind of about that too. And weirdly enough, as soon as I finished it, I thought, oh, I could write about comic books again. I could totally go back to writing about comic books now. And I hadn't had that feeling for years you know it had been uh it had been like what 10 years <laughs> since i'd published anything about comic books and i suddenly realized like oh i could um i actually am kind of interested in putting out an imp book now like a kind of a box set with just reprints of the four issues with maybe a little a new material like uh i've always wanted to do it what's called, what I always called the imp one half, which would just be about me and the comic books I made when I was in sixth grade and seventh grade, which I got into a lot of trouble for making. Uh, and, 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 you know, put some new material in there. I mean, I think on the one hand, maybe it's the equivalent of the Sex Pistols going on their filthy Lucre tour, you know, like just an attempt to cash in on the old greatest hits, you know, but I don't know. I, I just suddenly I feel like oh I could do that, and I've always wanted to do an issue about Ivan Brunetti, who I just is an endlessly fascinating person and an artist and also a good friend. I, I don't know if I could do it now because we're such good friends, but
0: that was going to be Imp Five, though, wasn't it? On him
1: was it was, and I got so, I got as far as taking quite a few notes and I designed the cover to look like a Penguin Classic. So yeah, I I, I could do that again, and I've been kind of. I don't know if you know dan nadell he's sort of like the other dan comic book critic um nope. he just put together this huge comics show here at the museum of contemporary art here in chicago and he would like to put out a, a, a reissued imp through the the new york review of books has a comics imprint so i sent a bunch of issues to an editor there who's been kind of lukewarm about the whole thing i don't think It's been more than a year and actually he shows no sign of actually even having read the imp so i'm kind of losing a little bit of faith uh that that's going to work out but
0: um, well i would love i would buy copies i know others would too that would be amazing love to see a retrospective on it
1: i would yeah i would like to do it and and you know i there are there's so many comics that i would love to write about now and there's so many issues the imp that i had you know i made a list at some point of all the cartoonists i would like to do an issue on and i realized oh this would just take me the rest of my life (laughs) you know just like the hernandez brothers alone would take like years to do uh or linda berry
0: it's sick
1: yeah i always wanted to do an an issue like the canadian issue with chester brown joe matt and seth because those three like the intersections between their three books and the way each of them appeared as characters in the other two's comics. Yeah. Uh, was just That was a, such a fascinating run there throughout the 90s. So anyway, I had all these grand plans. And then, I don't know, life got in the way. But I might come back to it. I might. I, I have to finish this book I'm writing first. I, I know you were going to ask briefly. I, I can't talk about it too much because I find when I talk about work in progress.
0: No, no worries.
1: It, it sort of takes a little bit of gasoline out of the tank but I'm writing a book about uh, homeownership in Chicago, um, about condominium associations. Uh, You know, you buy an apartment here in a big city and you think it's your apartment, but in fact, you're buying into a building with 16 other families and you have to all get along and pay the bills together. things get really hairy <laughs> it gets it gets really messy and it was sort of a big thorn in my side for 10 years but then i realized oh yeah this would make a good story because it's a it's about democracy really like how do you get 16 different families from very different backgrounds very different orientations and prejudices and ideas and degrees of self-centeredness or selfishness or altruistic behavior, how do they all work? You know, how do you hold it together? So it's a comedy, basically. I'm trying to to use a comedy to make serious points about how fucked up our condo association was. Uh, Perhaps the news about the condo building in Miami that completely collapsed.
0: This was like a month ago. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That was big news here in the United States. And that's basically, I'm surprised it hasn't happened to my old building. Uh, I'm surprised it's still standing.
0: How are you going to keep this book, the knowledge of this book away from your neighbors? Is it, is this like a pretty personal book?
1: I don't use real names. Yeah. use real names. So everybody is camouflaged. The only, the only people whose real names I used, their names, they're these three brothers and their names were, and I'm not making this up, dizzy, sleepy and (laughs) slowy, those are their three (laughs) names. And those names I refuse to change because that fits them perfectly. (laughs) They're like, they're the comic relief. They're like the the seven dwarves, except there's only three of them. Do do you remember that scene in the decline of Western civilization part one, where um, Chuck Dukowski, you know, the bass player for Black Flag is talking about how he and Black Flag have to share their squat with these hippies? Yes. And he says, oh, you know, it's not so bad because the hippies smoke so much pot that they're basically neutralized. They've neutralized themselves. And that's kind of the story with Dizzy, Sleepy and Slowy. <laughs> they, <were, laughs> they used to literally sleep in the front yard. <laughs> they were just so high all the time. Um, so anyway, that's what I wrote this morning. So I'm having fun with it. I mean, it's nice to do a comedy. My last book was a tragedy and it was hard. This is a comedy. It's it's." it's actually like fun to write, so.
0: I can't wait. Oh, okay. good,
1: you, you are gonna have to wait because it won't be done for at least another year. <laughs> and there'll be another year in the <laughs> slow production process after that, if I can find a buyer
0: for it, but yeah. Well, something to look forward to. And my next year's, gonna, we've got a newborn coming, so my next year's gonna be pretty much a write-off anyway. So this is fine.
1: I'll yeah. wake up
0: from that year and, uh, and your book will be out. Something to really look forward to.
1: So. You'll be reading board books.
0: Yeah. I will be. I. You know what? I'm very excited to read board books and picture books. My kids have outgrown those. We read kind of bigger, meatier books now together most nights. But I do miss reading simple picture books and board books.
1: I really miss reading Frog and Toad. Do you read Frog and Toad to your kids? You know what?
0: We tried Frog and Toad on the girls a couple times, and they kind of poked at it a little bit, and they they just sat there. I took it back to the library. <laughs> I wanted, you know, you know those books and movies and music that you want to foist, yeah, on your children. Frog and Toad didn't work out. A bunch of other stuff has worked out. Frog and Toad did not take.
1: Yeah, I I remember walking by uh my eleven year old. Uh, well. She was ten at the time, walking by her room, and I heard the pixies coming out of her room, like what? playing her little iPhone. Yeah, she was listening to—I can't remember—it was Caribou or UMass or some, you know, it was like vintage classic, loud, fast pixies, and, and you know, I just kind of stopped in my tracks. And then I asked her like the next day, like, Hey, so you like the Pixies. Oh, great. So then I tried to voice, oh, well, you've really got to listen to their first EP, 1987, <laughs> come on Pilgrim. And it's got a song about Nimrod in there, blah, blah, blah. And then I just ruined it and, you know, and then it's like, she didn't want to hear the Pixies anymore. Cause it's suddenly it, my, it was my thing, you know, yeah. and if you're trying to introduce your kids to your music, you, yeah, they're just are not gonna go for it. They have to discover it on their own.
0: Yeah, you are gonna be very kind of casual about it. Just play it in the background and then they say, what's this? And it hooks them <laughs> You gotta play it cool. And they're like, oh, that's just, you know, some jangly pop from New Zealand. You know? <laughs> that's right.
1: It's kind of like Flight of the Concords, but different. Right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Before I let you go, can you talk a bit about your uh, transition to academia? You are the, you're an assistant professor of practice of the arts at University of Chicago in their English department. What is that all about?
1: Oh man, you you need a whole nother hour to go into it. Yeah. <laughs> the,
0: the digest it's a, version.
1: It's a really great day job. You know, I, I can't, I've never been able, I'm apparently allergic to writing things that sell extremely well. So I can't make a living at my writing. And I, I love teaching. I love teaching. Teaching is only half the job, um, but the students are fantastic because it's nonfiction. The world comes to me. It is tough because it's a desk job and it's a lot of work. To do a good job of teaching writing, it's a ton of work, but it's worth doing well. And the thing I like is the world comes to me. My students have exciting, interesting lives and they've gone out and done all kinds of interesting cool things, you know, like organized against a dam in rural India or whatever. And they write a long 30 page piece about that process and I get to read it so the world comes to me and they can write about anything. I mean, that's what I love about nonfiction, just to sort of go back to what I was saying an hour ago about my first visit to Quimby's was realizing how much all of the zine world was about nonfiction. And I love nonfiction because it's the genre that allows you to write about anything in the world, just as long as it's true. So they bring me all kinds of stuff that I never could have dreamed of. It, it keeps me young yeah. and it gives me a lot of hope for the future, You know, I think working with young people. I think the stereotype is the college professor despairing about the youth of today, but I actually have the opposite experience. I just... <laughs> I despair most of all for the boomer generation and slightly less for my generation, which is generation X, but the millennials on down, I'm very optimistic about them. Like they are much, they seem much more focused and more politically, socially economically conscious uh, and realistic than certainly me and my peers did in 1987 to 1990.
0: Thank you so much to Daniel for taking the time to chat. All four issues of The Imp are available on Daniel's website, danielrayburn.com. He's also published a monograph on Chris Ware with Yale University Press. And amazingly enough, he manages to say a whole bunch of new things about Ware without repeating himself at all. So do check that out as well. And Vessels, of course, is available wherever you buy books. And that is it for us at Rockrit in 2021. We'll be back in January with fresh Canadian content for all of you denim delinquents out there. Thank you so much for listening and all the very best in the new year.